Welcome to another edition of This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular conversation about all things tech policy, privacy and cybersecurity. I'm Arj and I'm joined again by Jordan. Hi Jordan, how are you going? Hey Arj, I'm great. Hello for the last time this year. It is the last time this year. I can't believe it's this late in the year and we're still talking, we're still we're still podcasting, so it's awesome. We're still <laughs> podcasting, which if you'd told me that in January or February or November last year when we started, I would have been quite surprised. Yeah, likewise. I guess being the last episode of the year in our first year, we're going to do something a little bit different and hope our listeners indulge us a little bit in a bit of a retrospective. We're going to have a bit of a chat about the issues that stood out to us the most and you know how they evolved and anything that particularly surprised us since we sort of had those initial conversations about them. But Maybe first, even just a bit of a retrospective on the year of the podcast itself. Yeah, I mean, it's been a crazy year. This whole thing started as a, I don't know, a fun idea to experiment with. Our very early episodes were just kind of, I mean, we recorded a couple October, November last year. We operated in secret for about six months. (laughs) In secret and then started publishing, started editing, started thinking about bit seriously, started putting a weekly schedule together. And yeah, I mean, it really started for me as a very much an experiment, right? A, A bit of a play around, an excuse. We were just coming out of lockdowns and it was kind of an excuse to have a chat about the news and think a bit more deeply about what's going on. And yeah, I think, I mean, in our early conversations, we we never even imagined we'd do it weekly. Like that seemed like a crazy idea, right? Completely. Yeah. I think um, it probably had one of the most cliched podcast origins, which was, or at least my memory of it was, we'd had a few conversations about things that interested us in the world of privacy, security, and we were very self-amused and entertained and thought, wow, oh, maybe this should be a podcast, <laughs> you know, it was like, which is probably the, the cliche beginning for many. But yeah, the, the idea that we would sort of put some structure and rhythm into doing something weekly, I could never have imagined it. And if you had told me back then that we're going to commit to doing something that's weekly, I probably would have said, no, look, that's probably going to be beyond us. Yeah, exactly right. What are we, 44, I think this will be? Yeah, the 44th episode. Yeah. That we've published. The idea that we'd get to almost 50 in a year is just wild to me and I mean it represents like a pretty crazy amount of work just like plugging along week to week so I think we both deserve congratulations on that I think that's I'm I'm pretty proud of like quite a large amount of content and we've gotten some pretty positive reviews from some people whose opinions I really care about so yeah yeah it's like the feedback was interesting over the years that slow expanding out from like immediate family members and then friends and then maybe colleagues and associates and then we were starting to hear from people that were not known to us at all or people in the industry that we respect but maybe don't have direct contact with uh, who had heard the podcast so it's been great yeah and it's such a it is such a thrill every time something like that happens as well. It's still a bit of a shock to me when I come across people in the wild who listen to it. You know, the experience of recording these things is quite enclosed, right? We're just sitting on teams chatting. And so the fact that it's out in the world is kind of sometimes a bit of a surprise. That is one of my observations and and recollections from the year as well, is that it's a format that I've not done before. And, you know, so I'm very used to sort of 
you write a blog post, you put something out on LinkedIn and you get you get a sense of feedback, you get a sense of commentary and podcasts, it happens less so because you sort of, you push this thing out and it's people listen to it in their cars or whatever over 20 minutes. They're not right at the computer to say, here's what I think. So the feedback does come back from time to time and it's always amazing when you hear from someone. I guess I'm going to take the opportunity right now also to say like, this is not something we do a lot of, the sort of the plug or the request but if you have listened through the year and you have found it interesting or valuable we would love it if you would to share it with a friend or you know let someone know in your industry or a colleague or a friend who you think might find it valuable because yeah that feedback it doesn't always come back and so one of the things we do get a sense of is you know the growth of the audience and so yeah please share it if you think it's valuable and get in touch we'd love to hear from you absolutely yeah if there's any kind of comments or feedback or things you think we should talk about or whatever yeah very keen the only other thing i want to say is like it's been great to sort of learn and explore thoughts out loud in a very public way it's terrifying you know we're not necessarily having full mastery of all the topics before we hit record like a lot of this is sort of us probing and pushing and trying to understand and work our way through issues and I think we have a sense maybe that sometimes there are some dots to be joined between things that we're seeing and we're not really sure what those links and connections are and so we just sort of talk through it but I've learned so much through the process of talking to you and trying to work up what is the sort of deeper connective tissue here. And, and it's been fun to do that out loud, but yeah, terrifying as well. For sure, right. Like we both have our areas of expertise in comms for you and privacy for me. And there's some episodes where we're talking, you know, well in our wheelhouse. And then for me, I think the funnest episodes and one of the things we wanted to do with this is yeah, get out a bit over our skis and talk about effective altruism or crypto or some of those topics that are maybe a little bit more of a stretch for us. So back to that getting in touch if you think we're completely wrong on something. Love to hear from you. Love to learn. So speaking of topics that maybe we're not necessarily masters of but have strong opinions on, um, maybe we, we can move into kind of our recap of things that interested us. And the first one's crypto. Massive story this year, not in the wheelhouse of core privacy, core security, but definitely has implications for those areas. And we weighed into it, I think, a couple of times over the course of the year, mainly early in the year, I think, because it was still riding the wave of so much hype and there was a lot of push and commentary around it. We, I think, were quite strong in our both of our views that we weren't huge fans of the cryptoverse, that there was a strong kind of feeling of a scam element about it. It was like powered by a lot of hype and there seemed to be a lot of unwitting victims to be taken advantage of, you know, the way that it was structured and this kind of greater fool theory, which is that there's no intrinsic value in them. But if you've gone in early and then you get more and more people to buy in on the hype, the value of the thing that you hold goes up and that that was it. And there's no like real concrete use case sitting behind it, right? That all of that is just driven by hype around the value of these things going to the moon without any like concrete use case that it's actually useful for. I think when we talked about it, we sort of separated. There's the cryptocurrency part of it, which has this speculative, volatile, greater full theory at play. And then the, the people separate it and say, well, but then there's the blockchain that underpins it and, and that's going to solve all the world's problems as well. And we were like, well, 
show us the applications. Yes, people are saying that, but it's been a good 10 plus years since Bitcoin and blockchain has been around. Where is this revolutionary thing? So that's what, you know, we started off skeptical at the start of the year and I feel like we've been rather vindicated. So that's uh, one in the win column, I think, for our predictions. Yeah, more recently over the second half of the year, especially the price of Bitcoin's really crashed. You know, they're calling it the crypto winter. I think there's been a few of these, but Bitcoin's down 75% from its all-time high in November last year. There's been a whole sequence of crypto-related companies falling over, culminating in FTX and then, you know, the contagion from FTX affecting a number of other organizations as well. So the observations that I would draw from our coverage and the year is some degree of vindication in terms of our skepticism about the industry. A bit of regret that it quite got so mainstream before FTX in particular collapsed. Like I think there are a lot of fairly regular people who've plowed a whole lot of money into this stuff, hoping that it'll get them somewhere financially and a lot of them have been completely ruined. So I think the human suffering element there is while we're claiming victory in terms of predictions, it's it's not a happy victory there. Not at all. And it bears remembering how many forms it took as well. Like I think FTX is very prominent now as the sort of vehicle for us to think about its failure and the people who bought cryptocurrency or sought to trade it. But crypto and blockchain in general I mean, you don't hear these words anymore as much, but like the first part of the year was all about Web 3.0 and NFTs. And so it took all these different forms of the way people were encouraged to sort of buy into it. And many of those things we don't hear about so much anymore. I don't think I've heard NFTs discussed as frequently. All of these things seem to have very much soured and people have unfortunately bought in and suffered as a result. And like you say, the mainstreaming, is probably the saddest take out of it all. The irony there as well is that the appeal was that it's unregulated or it's self-regulated and code is law and we don't need all these intermediaries. And the most significant collapse FTX is largely because it's unregulated. You know, you've got people handling billions of dollars of money without any of the financial and due diligence and risk and compliance regulation that applies to the banking sector. And so its biggest strength turns out to be its biggest weakness in a way that was, in my view, entirely predictable. Yeah, and I think it's part of the reason why it really irks both of us. That sort of underlying narrative behind the people that push this is that the technology will solve all the problems and run itself and the undermining of institutions and regulation and trust and all of that benefit a certain Silicon Valley executive type class. I think that worldview was something that challenged us in all of this. There's a real analogy, I think, to these claims that like privacy is dead, you know, there's this claim that like, oh, big regulation is dead and intermediaries are dead. We have this magical technological solution. Similarly, privacy is dead. And it turns out, well, no, 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 (laughs) this thing is actually quite valuable and plays a role. Another big news theme for the year was uh, the Russia-Ukraine war. We've talked about that a few times on the pod over the year, and we've been tracking it closely in terms of these claims in particular that there'd be a cyber Pearl Harbor or that there'd be a really significant cyber element of that war, both within Ukraine in terms of Russian cyber attacks and how that might play out in conjunction with kinetic traditional military 
operations and then the possibility of Russian cyber attacks on Ukraine supporters, US, us, Europe, others, you know, this idea of this Russian cyber threat that would accompany the invasion of Ukraine. And what we saw over the course of the year was, with some minor exceptions, largely that didn't seem to eventuate. There wasn't this really massive Russian cyber capability, much like the, you know, the Russians' conventional army didn't get nearly as much done as was expected initially. It turns out, it seems, their cyber capability is much more oriented towards kind of influence and social media and stuff, right, than any really great capability to reach in and turn things off or to connect to coordinate with kinetic military operations. So that's been really interesting to observe. It's something that wasn't quite as we expected to see when that war just started kicking off. It's always been the thing we've been primed for. Like if Russia or China ever got in a war, that they would just bring this cyber capability to the table and we would see like you know, fighter jets crashing out of the sky and electricity grids being completely shut off and dams busting and all sorts of stuff. And I read a great quote that said that the reality was that the whole thing never rose above the level of a series of pranks and pranks have never won a war. And I thought that kind of summed it up. But I liked your point about how what's happened with the cyber war capability is very much a sort of mirror of the kinetic war, like in terms of There's been no sort of big bang victory for Russia, which was also expected on the conventional kinetic war. Like the view was that they'd come in and get it done in like a couple of weeks. And it certainly hasn't played out on the cyber front. Some stuff about the lack of coordination that has been there in the traditional army uh, has kind of also played out on the cyber front. And then I think the other piece is, again, mirroring the kinetic thing is just underestimating the opponent. Like Ukraine has chops (laughs) when it comes to cyber. And I think that's been made clear like they've been able to defend and counter-attack on the cyber front as well so interesting just to watch like what does that mean when we now talk about cyber war the focus seems to be more on information war rather than kinetic effects as a result of cyber it's just this like muckraking and distraction and disinformation and how that just plays havoc with even just the broader global perceptions of who's winning the war and who's right and whatnot yeah yeah i also wonder how many lessons we can take to broader cyber war with like more capable countries like whether this is just russia not having the capability to do this or whether we need to think differently about cyber in general like i hope we never see it but if the us and china are having a concerted conflict over taiwan for example you might see a much greater role for cyber you might have a that cyber pearl harbor warning might be played out hopefully we don't see that So one of the other recurring themes for the podcast throughout the year was facial recognition technologies. Earlier on in the year, we almost could not stop talking about one particular provider of facial recognition technologies, which is the infamous Clearview AI. I did a search of our um, notes we put together before we record, and it was Clearview appears in nine of our episode outlines over the course of the year, very heavily weighted to the start of the year. I think that in itself was fascinating because I think maybe at the start of the year, we were talking more about the company and, you know, what it represented. And as it would emerge, facial recognition as a technology was actually something that was going to be a much more broader topic and the uptake of it was going to be a much more broader thing. And so the podcast sort of went into those areas. But just very briefly on why we were so 
obsessed and fascinated by Clearview earlier on in the year was because they were just such a poster boy for bad technology. I mean, the way they implemented, I mean, facial recognition has its own challenges and there's things that are problematic about it, but the way Clearview AI went about its development of facial recognition technology was something else. I mean, their technology basically is developed from scraping people's images of social networks without their consent and then using that to feed this facial recognition algorithm and, and technology. So the very premise by which they've built the technology is dicey. And then having developed this very unpalatable technology, just the very obvious way that they were trying to give it a more ethical veneer by suggesting that it would help solve all of these big challenges that we actually are genuinely concerned about. So, hey, you can use our Clearview AI technology to solve terrorism or to find child sex offenders. And then when even that wasn't getting them across the line in terms of the public reputation, they would then go, well, you can use it in the Ukraine war, you know, to fight the Russians. And it was just amazing to watch this business shop itself about and try to find itself a good reception. One of the really interesting offshoots of that was the US Federal Trade Commission increasingly seeking to prevent companies from using, say, algorithms that they had generated from ill-gotten data. So in the Clearview AI case, they're using this facial recognition algorithm that they've developed from scraping largely illegally, I think, websites for photographs and social media. And so, you know, this idea that if you were to take a privacy action against them, you would not just seek to delete the photos that they'd collected, but you'd seek to prevent them from getting benefit from those photos in the form of the algorithm. And so you'd stop them from using that too. I thought that was a a really interesting approach that the US Federal Trade Commission's kind of started taking this year and that our Australian regulator would do well to follow. Like the proceeds of crime idea, like, yeah. Clearview AI was fined by a whole bunch of data protection regulators in that early part of the year, like in Australia, UK, France, Italy, they all fined them. And so it would seem that facial recognition had a bad taint to it after that series. But then what we saw in the second half of the year was interesting because in Australia in particular, we started to see more and more you know, stories about very well-known companies and organizations wanting to try facial recognition to solve problems that they had. Probably the highest profile one was the retailers, Kmart, Bunnings and Good Guys, using it to sort of detect shoppers who had previously been banned or kicked out for some sort of offense or like abusing staff or whatnot. So they were using it essentially to protect the safety of other customers and their staff. That didn't go over well. And then we saw pubs and clubs looking to use it in different contexts and then even schools looking at biometrics for accessing toilets. And so it was very interesting to see that despite that general disdain that Clearview AI earned itself, that didn't stop companies and businesses wanting to try out facial recognition in the latter part of the year. This is one that the development of the coverage and public opinion and stuff around facial recognition has kept kind of surprising me a little over the course of the year. Like there was this really strong negative public reaction to that choice article about the retailer's using facial recognition, which, you know, if you'd asked me at the start of the year, I might not have predicted that strength of public reaction, right? And then almost immediately after this really strong public reaction, you have the clubs, you know, ACT, 
and Clubs New South Wales looking to use facial recognition for policing people coming into gambling venues. South Australian pubs and clubs already have facial recognition on entry that's mandated and rolled out across the state, and you don't get anywhere near the same public reaction to that. The dynamics of public opinion and organisations' choices to use facial recognition or to not use it has, I don't know, it, it, it moves in a way that has been constantly surprising me. Well, the good news, I think, is there is some thoughtful approaches to how do we mitigate these risks, how do we understand these risks, and you know, the idea that maybe we need something a bit more bespoke and dedicated around facial recognition and even AI in terms of regulation. So, you know, the UTS Human Technology Institute has proposed a facial recognition model law. This is Ed Santos Institute over at UTS. So I think there's a more nuanced conversation about the applications as opposed to just the technology and, you know, the risks that they represent. And so, and I think that maybe goes into that space of like, what's the context in which it's being used? How is it being used? Can the risk be mitigated as opposed to a sort of black or white facial recognition is bad or good? Yeah. And that report makes a really good argument for another point on my opinion has probably changed over the course of the year about whether or not the Privacy Act is good enough in itself to regulate facial recognition or if whether we need a dedicated law. That report makes the very good point that for the most part, facial recognition is not regulated. I mean, Privacy Act catches big business, but it doesn't catch political parties. It doesn't catch media organizations. It doesn't catch employees of private sector organizations, doesn't catch small business. And it's got really broad law enforcement exceptions as well. And so, you know, there's just large swathes of the economy where facial recognition deployments just aren't regulated at all, really. So yeah, anyway, that's a really interesting report. We'll probably chat about that in more detail on a later pod, I think. But yeah, my retrospective for the year around facial recognition is that it's been moving in a just a really unpredictable way, but it's been moving towards less and less public tolerance, higher and higher risk in terms of an organisation rolling it out. Another theme for the year was Australia's uh, cybersecurity strategy and kind of how we approach cybersecurity from a like big picture national perspective. So, you know, in general, we were observing at the start of the year that we were overdue a refreshed national cybersecurity strategy. How long was it? 2016 was the last one. And And so we were ready for a new one. Then it came with the Morrison government's um, $10 billion red spice program, which we were a bit critical of. We enjoyed the name and the June reference, but it was a bit narrow and very defense focused, right? It was very like toys for ASD, the signals directorate, and it kind of failed to address broader kind of resilience in the economy and actually improve cybersecurity, you know, protect us from attack rather than develop our offensive capabilities. And then six months later, you have this spate of breaches, Medibank, Optus, others, which has led to a broader approach to whole of economy resilience from the federal government. So that's been an interesting kind of course over the year. Yeah, I think Claire O'Neill may have planted the seeds that they were going to rethink the cyber strategy that the previous government had launched just before the breaches. And then the breaches have kind of turbocharged the need to just revamp it entirely. And I mean, 
I think there's just been some key sort of tonal shifts that I think have been really valued in the way we're talking about cyber at a strategy and a policy perspective. I mean, like you said, there was an excessive focus just on defense and defense toys in the previous approach. And that one is bad because it's like, you know, you're just spending all the money in one place. But also I think it took the focus off the accountability that industry also has to lift its maturity. And so we've seen a sort of shift in that expectation that industry has a responsibility. And I think around Optus and Medibank, the strong language from government sort of reinforced that. It's like, we're not happy if organizations don't take this seriously. But then at the same time, there's a lot more positive language around partnerships. You know, Claire O'Neill, when she said they're revamping the strategy, talked about the fact that there needs to be a new partnership between business and government around this stuff. So I think that really gives a better representation of how the risk sits across the economy. It's not just something for government to solve and it creates expectations in industry as well. Yeah. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about the breach response was this recognition that like strategies aside, the practical response was the multi-pronged response. You know, you've got the defense response, the joint task force between signals directorate and federal police, and that they're going to be attacking forward and disabling infrastructure and making life hard for ransomware gangs. But then you've also got the domestic law enforcement response, trying to prevent misuse of this data and monitoring and preparing for identity fraud. You've got the care response, you know, wrapping protections and support around the individuals that were affected. You've got conversations springing up about the resilience of our identity systems and, you know, how hard is it to steal a person's identity or, you know, maybe we should change the way that we, you know, the numbers on driver's licenses, you know, all of these kind of detailed discussions about resilience and how identity works. The responses recognize that need for a real multi-pronged consideration has been quite a mature, I think, response to such major breaches. Yeah. One of the things that I've reflected on in this space is also I've had sort of conversations with people in industry about how vocal Claire O'Neill has been and how strong she's been. And, you know, I know there's at least some people that have found that a little bit provocative, you know, that she's been so bullish on some of this stuff. But I have really found it to be, generally speaking, spot on, like the sort of approach she's taken. For one, I think it shows the value of the fact that we've got a minister for cybersecurity. I mean, obviously, we had the breaches that brought this topic into focus, but having a minister who has accountability for this has really given like a platform for these things to be discussed in a really prominent way and to really get progress and momentum. But Otherwise, just the tonal shifts around like where accountability sits, there's a sense of proactivity and even like aggressiveness about the stance Australia wants to take. And then, and then like you say, there's been a real sense of a, like a holistic response, you know, like it's pulling at all the levers from law enforcement through to industry, through to resilience, through to protection and defense. And so I have felt like we're in a good place in terms of, you know, we're looking at the right areas. Speaking of movement on reform, the other big one for us, obviously, has been privacy reform. You know, we've been waiting for this for so long. At the start of the year, there was a discussion paper of the Privacy Act review. And I guess we were at a point where we were like waiting and wondering if that was ever going to lead to anything. There was obviously an election coming and, you know, a change in government 
could see some movement on that. And sure enough, there was a change in government. But even after that, I mean, I, I personally was still like hopeful, but a little bit pessimistic that despite a change in government, that there would be real action in the next year or two because the new government had a broad agenda and I didn't see privacy really coming up in the election campaign. So it didn't feel like there was ever going to be any progress. But then, yeah, sure enough, the AG, the Attorney General, he mentioned privacy reform being on his priority list in an interview at some point, And we all got very excited that, hey, look, they actually might be doing this. And and then the breaches came and we've seen real sort of action on this in the shape of an amendment to the Privacy Act to introduce much more severe fines, you know, in the order of $50 million and 30% of turnover and so forth, but also some commitments to act on the broader privacy reform agenda over the next 12 months or so. Yeah, yeah. And I think those recent reforms are quite significant. I think, first of all, the penalties, but also I think one of the overlooked elements of that is the changes to the information sharing rules between the OAIC and other agencies. So I think it makes it a lot easier for the OAIC to collaborate with um, particularly the ACCC, but with others around enforcement matters. So giving intelligence about complaints or concerns over to ACCC, who has a much more significant enforcement budget and is much more able to take enforcement actions on, say, misleading and deceptive conduct. There's some interesting elements there that are going to play out next year. But my frustration here is that we are still waiting. I just want, I want to report, I want to know the shape of things to come. You know, we've been talking about the coming reform since 2019 when the review was announced. We're, you know, three years later and we're no closer to a clear idea of what the new laws are actually going to look like. And it's becoming a real kind of challenge talking to our clients about this stuff, right? It's like there's going to be dramatic changes that will be coming, but I can't really tell you what they're going to look like exactly. And how do you plan in that environment, I think is a real challenge. So, you know, it's not just my personal desire for some holiday reading. It's a real need, I think, for clarity about what's coming and what it's going to look like. Yeah, I think it's fair to say, like most of us in the industry are pretty, well, it's been a long process, but we're pretty juiced up now. We're waiting for this next step. But in a way that I still probably wouldn't have foreseen in the early part of the year, I wouldn't have thought we would have such heavy expectations that something should land you know like we're really genuinely thinking like this is coming and it should come uh, whereas or at least for me there was a risk i was starting to kind of give up on seeing it at all the the change in government's been really significant for that i think the reforms to a privacy act that we'd see under a labor government are quite likely to be much more extensive and with different attitudes to certain issues like some of the exemptions and so on than under a liberal government so i think that's a real significant change It's been fun to kind of recap some of those big ones. I mean, there's so much more we managed to get through this year, but those are some of the the more salient discussion topics for us and interesting to see how they've evolved since we first touched on them. I guess my final sort of takeaways for the year, I mean, um, I'm going to preface this by saying there's probably a bit of like confirmation bias because this is all we've been talking about and reading and our lens around a lot of these issues is very much trying to take a critical look at some of these technologies and the idea that we can put our faith in technology to solve all the world's problems. That's the sort of framing. So, but I do feel like my sense over the year has been that some of the sheen of that techno-utopian view has come off. 
there have been a number of things that we've talked about today, you know, crypto, Web 3.0, where the sort of the illusion around them has dissipated a bit and people are staring at them with a lot more criticality. And things like facial recognition have really gone through the ringer this year. And I don't think anybody's thinking of it as a panacea. Automation, you know, RoboDebt is resurfaced quite heavily in the press over recent weeks, you know. I hope and I think that there's a sort of greater sense of cautious optimism around technology rather than the techno-utopian view. And also that I think there's been like a little bit of a resurgence in just the idea that like tech policy has a role to play. Like I think one of our episodes was talked about the tech reg stampede because there was this sort of real push to solve challenges in all these areas from from online safety through to privacy to cyber, fairness and discrimination. All of these things just feel like they've come up. And like I said, there might be confirmation bias because that's what we've been talking about week to week here. But I'm hoping that that just sets us up to be like we've got great potential here from this technology, but we can't just sort of let it run free and let the tech billionaires have their version of the world kind of run free on the back of that technology. We want it to work for all of us. And my takeaway is that we're sort of positioned to have that conversation more and more over the next year or two. Yeah, I love that. And that's such an optimistic view, right? And I'd agree with that, that I mean, the way I'd put it is just don't believe the hype, right? And we're getting better at not believing the hype. If someone turns up with a magical solution to your identity problem, to your employment problem, to processing a million complaints that you receive or engaging with your staff or assessing performance or knowing when a kid's bored in maths class or whatever it is, these solutions are not magical and they potentially introduce their own risks and we are getting a little better at looking past the hype or we've failed to look past the hype and we've deployed these systems and we're seeing the damage that we can make. You know, we've progressed a lot in our conversation around social media and the harms that it causes, right? That's just been a gradual maturing of our understanding of these systems and how they affect us. One thing Ed Santo, former human rights commissioner, often says about facial recognition and artificial intelligence more generally is that we often don't need new laws for this stuff. We don't need new values. We have we have liberal democratic values. We have laws. We have things that we accept and we don't accept in terms of discrimination and equality and equity and rights. And none of this stuff needs a brand new kind of approach it's not paradigm shifting in any meaningful way. It's just we need to apply our established set of values to how these technologies affect us. And when we can look a bit more clear eyed at how they affect us, I think we can see the harms and we can respond to them, which is what you're kind of describing, right? We're just getting better, I think, over time at incorporating these new technologies, looking at how they in practice affect people and taking a view on that. I really love that because uh, it sort of speaks to a sense of like an ahistorical view that sometimes we have with technology. Like we've never stared into these challenges before or that the technology will allow us to just reinvent things. And, you know, like as we've said with crypto, like look at the way they're staring back now into regulation and building all the things as you often have said, like re-engineering 100 and 200 years of learning that the financial system has had and built to mitigate risk. Then they're like, well, now we need some of that. And so I love that idea that we have got these values already. We've got these systems already. And um, hopefully, yeah, we'll see more of that applied in our thinking over the year ahead.
Well, that's it for the year. That's us. We are going to be on a two-week break. So we'll be back with our next episode in the second week of January. But um, yeah, it's been great fun. I'll take the opportunity to thank you for for the conversations. It's been like a real ride and I've learned a lot from you and looking forward to more chats next year as well. Yeah, you too, Arj. It's been great. It's a part of my week I look forward to every week. Our little like planning chat and then our record is always really fun challenging and interesting and an absolute pleasure so it's been fun let's uh, do it all again next year yeah see you in 2023 see you then